Hello! Yes, you're there. You're still there. Another week, another dishcast. This week, we're going to talk about two really encouraging and uplifting subjects, the continuing and evolving and gyrating and, and metamorphosizing COVID-19 outbreak, and the progress or otherwise of our attempt to prevent the climate change that is more likely to make more such epidemics much more likely, namely what happened at Glasgow with the attempt to restrain our global temperatures to habitable levels of, for human beings, let alone other poor creatures who inhabit the island, the, the planet that we are busy destroying. Well, who better? to talk about these things than David Wallace-Wells, my old friend and editor at New York Magazine, the author of Uninhabitable Earth, one of the predictors, I think, of the more the direst scenarios in climate, and who also came and we chatted, I don't know, was it about a year ago, really, about, about the epidemic and how it was going. So let's start off, David, just by asking you, how's your epidemic? How, what, what, what's your life like now and your family, and how are you currently seeing it personally in terms of, of, of living day to day? Well, I think in most concrete ways, my life almost feels post-pandemic in the sense that, you know, I live in New York City because things were so bad there last spring. We basically haven't had a significant second wave since. I live among you know, vaccine-focused people who are who've also been quite conscientious in the way that they live their lives. And as a result, my life has not, you know, my life was upended quite a bit last year, like everybody's was, but I haven't been surrounded or touched by all that much real sickness or death throughout the pandemic. And now, you know, both of my little kids are in nursery school every day, and there have been no interruptions so far this school year. I've been socializing mostly outside, but not exclusively. And, you know, if you were looking at that from 10,000 feet, you might say, everything's back to normal. And to a certain degree, it, it is. I do feel a little bit just a psychological hangover when I go into a restaurant, you know, with low ceilings and, and no windows, as I've done a couple of times and everybody's without a mask. It still makes me uncomfortable as, as you know, as much as I feel like I understand the data clearly that, you know, ultimately not that many people are sick, especially in New York City. I'm relatively safe given that I'm relatively young. It's still, I think it's going to take me a while to really shake off the, you know, the, the scar tissue of what it meant to be living um, in fear for so long. I was hoping that my own scar tissue was beginning to flake off, as it were, even though this metaphor is actually kind of disgusting at this point. So we'll <laughs> abandon it. Um, yeah, I had, inc I, incidentally, I got, I got hand, foot, and mouth disease a few weeks ago from my, one of my daughters, and like my, all of my skin actually just did peel off and sheets. It really did? Just your listeners, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I had a couple of rashes while we're at it, but <laughs> we'll leave the rashes uh, yeah, of yeah, my yeah. various allergies behind but um see i was sort of roughly where you are and i I've, I've been pretty careful i mean i've i'm now i'm now on my i'm now i've got the grand slam i have jj Pfizer, and madonna in mm -hmm. my system at some point so this motherfucker uh virus is gonna have you know some problems I feeling roughly like that i i'm i'm ready at this point have been ready to go out in the world i really wasn't too worried about it most of the fall. I went to travel abroad, which will wake you up to these things, but because you're getting needles stuck in you before you go, you have to like, 
uh, test them. You have to get tested. I entered England, had to get tested after two days and had to get tested before I came back. And there was that sudden moment when I'm like, ooh, I guess I never really thought through the fact that if I am COVID positive in one of these PCR tests, they won't let me back into America. And what are they going to do with me? Where am I going to go? I mean, are they going to put me in one of these Heathrow hotels? What is going to happen? And it's just that moment when you think, well, it feels kind of normal. England especially recently has been chilling out a lot and no, couldn't see many masks at all. I mean, I mean, I, we didn't go to London, but I was in small town England and masks were pretty much uh, non-existent. Yeah. And occasionally yeah. people would put them on. But then this news, Omicron, has, uh, is that how you pronounce it, by the way? I, I haven't really heard it. There are like eight different pronunciations. Mentally, Omicron. I think Omicron, because I think of it as small Omicron. L, but uh, yeah. Um, Omicron, well, whatever it is. I think Omicron um, is how I've heard it most commonly. Yes, Omicron. And we don't know enough yet about it. Everybody keeps telling us, although I've been reading and reading and reading about this, and there are some worrying things about it. One worrying thing does seem to be that it is it is more, it seems to be more infectious than Delta. Is this something that we know yet for sure? Or is it just that every single uh, data point we're getting tells us it's, it's, it's more infectious, more transmissible? I think we can be pretty confident that it is more transmissible than Delta is right now. Now, there's some, some thinking that, you know, these strains do their transmissibility is not necessarily constant. And it may be the case that Delta is now um, somewhat less transmissible than it was when it really took off and took over. Wherever we're seeing the two variants compete right now, Omicron is absolutely wiping the floor with Delta, which suggests that it has some meaningful advantage, at least over Delta right now. And ultimately, that's, you know, that's bad news. <laughs> if we have, you know, a, an ongoing spread with Delta, as we've seen, not just in the US, but really all across Europe, that is not terrifyingly high, but also not nothing has resulted, especially in the US with some real some real ugly outcomes, because it's it's significant enough, and we have low enough vaccination rates. This does seem to be worse than that. It does seem to suggest that we're going to be um, facing a worse, you know, worse next few weeks that we're going to be seeing, or next few months. You know, the other questions about immune escape, one of, there are basically three things we want to think about, immune escape, transmissibility, and virulence or pathogenicity. And immune escape and transmissibility are, they have a relationship with one another. You know, you can see essentially the well, same let's, population. Well, let's just for the effect. readers, let's for yeah. the listeners, just spell out each of those things. The first, the first term. Okay, so transmissibility is, you know, how how many, basically it's how many people are going to be infected by an individual case. That's how it's often measured. It basically means how catching it is, how infectious it is. Immune does escape mean, is... Just to drill down on that, does that mean the individual sheds more virus at various points or that the virus itself can linger in the air longer or that there's something in the virus itself that what makes it more transmissible? I've never quite fully grappled with that. My sense is that there can be many, many different drivers of that, including some of the ones you mentioned, but also including how how binding it is, you know, once it does get into your body, how likely it is to reproduce, how likely it is to stick there. You know, there, there you know, it's, it's a complicated virus and there are many different things that could make it more transmissible. So it's, it could be a number of different factors. And then our but, second um, term was immune escape? Immune escape. And that, you know, that basically means how likely is someone who is either been vaccinated or who has been infected in the past, who we would expect to have a robust response to a second exposure, how likely is it that they in fact get reinfected and 
you know, also secondarily, how likely it is that, that they're that they're going to get quite sick from it. So there's, you know, there's a degree of immune escape that could produce just mild infection. And there are some indications that that's what we're seeing so far with Omicron, although I think it is quite early. And then there would be another level in which um, previous exposure was so irrelevant that even people who had been well vaccinated and who had, or who had been exposed before or both um, could be vulnerable to serious illness. We haven't, as far as I can tell, we, we're not really seeing evidence of that yet, but it's also so early. And, you know, it's amazing that we have this sort of global alarm going up. We're still watching basically the initial cases go through their clinical course. We're still waiting to see how many of these people who, who got an early version of this are going to get very sick and are going to die. Or like I said, early indications are that most people who have, were, were vaccinated and even maybe those who had previous infections are having only mild or moderate disease. But it's so early, it's it's hard to say definitively that that's the case here. This um, seems but to be they, some... they do seem to be in getting infected. Like people who, who were vaccinated or who had previous exposure and were previously infected do seem to be getting sick again. And I think that gets to something that's a little tricky about this language, immune, immune escape or uh, immune evasive, which suggests to the layperson that like it renders previous protection irrelevant. But of course, we know vaccines aren't perfect in protecting against breakthrough infections. You can still get the disease. In fact, especially if you're old, if you have other conditions, you can even get a serious version of the disease. It's much, much less likely, but it's possible. And here, what we're talking about is not that a, you know a new variant would come along and totally obliterate that protection, but just that it would make make it less significant. So if the vaccine efficacy is 80%, let's say, it could cut it to 50%. If you're, you know, whatever protection from previous exposure you got is, you know, whatever level it is, this could cut it by a factor of five or whatever. And we don't have the good data on that, but it does seem to be the case that, you know, we are seeing a large number of, of reinfections, which means presumably, as we see this spread around the world, we're going to see many more cases of reinfection and breakthrough than we've been seeing even with Delta when we were seeing a non-zero amount of them. What we don't know really though, do we, is that first of all, how how easy it is to get reinfected with Omicron as compared to Delta. One would imagine it would be slightly easier, otherwise Omicron wouldn't have this this advantage or this swift and sudden advantage over Delta. And we don't know, of course, whether it will lead to more serious symptoms. But the question is, like, is this just Delta 2? Is this, as far as our response to it, is it going to be, oh, we have another variation of this virus that's going to reinfect more people, but the symptoms are not going to be quite as severe. Hospitalizations and deaths are not going to be that significant. Certainly no more, no worse than Delta. Now, we probably don't know that yet, right? But, but, but that's, that's, that's roughly the parameters. It's Delta plus. Biologically, it's actually more like some of the other variants that haven't worried us all that much. I think Lambda and Gamma are the two that it seems to be drawn from, although maybe Beta, I don't actually don't totally remember. But it, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that we've, this is the fifth variant that we've had, and only two of them have exhibited aspects of immune escape. And the one that really changed the game was Delta, which did not exhibit any immune escape. So I think especially those of us who are vaccinated, we, we tend to get really scared about this quality. But in fact, it may be transmissibility that is the most important factor, not immune escape. And what we're seeing with Omicron suggests both that it has a transmission advantage and that it is exhibiting some amount of immune escape. It's a pretty, it's a pretty scary combination. On the other hand, there is data from South, South Africa in particular 
that's showing that while there is has been a dramatic case spike, case spike um, over the last couple of weeks because of this new variant, the hospitalization rate has actually continued to, to decline, which is the trajectory it was on before that. Now, I'm not ready to say that that's going to be the way this plays out, even in South Africa, let alone in other countries. I think it's possible that what we're seeing is a lag and that hospitalizations will begin to pick up. But I think it's, you know, at least if you're being tentative and cautious about it, it's, it's you know, it's probably the case that we're not going to see this unbelievably dramatic spike in hospitalization and death as a result. It does seem to be producing more, on the whole, more mild um, cases than than Delta and, and previous variants did as well. So There's actually we'll evidence see. that, it's, that it's, the symptoms are milder. We actually have some data on that so far. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's early and there are caveats, including that the population that has gotten sick with this variant is younger, but that was also the case in previous waves. So when we compare it to previous waves and see that the shape is a little different, the shape of the hospitalization curve is a little different, it's encouraging. What worries me is, you know, if we're talking about a meaningful transmission advantage against Delta and some amount of immune escape, then we're talking about the possibility of much larger waves than we saw even with Delta. And when you're talking about a much larger wave, even if, you know, the percentage, the rate of severe illness is relatively low, you can end up with a quite devastating toll overall. And I think that that's, at least as far as we know, you know, everything we know about Omicron suggests that that's still kind of worryingly in play. It doesn't seem like we're all the way back at square one. It doesn't seem like we're going to be seeing you know, mass, mass death of the kind that we saw in, in when Delta hit India, for instance, where they had very little exposure and very little vaccine protection. But I think the possibility that, you know, in the US over the next few months, we see, you know, the death toll rising from an already quite high level of about a thousand people a day to something approaching last winter's peak when it was, you know, between two and three and a half thousand people a day. I think that's certainly possible. And, and the bulk of those lot. people will not have been vaccinated but some of them will have been vaccinated. Do you think the people who were vac- vaccinated may die of Omicron? That's a, that's a possibility. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, the vac- pe- vaccinated people are dying of Delta. You know, it's the vaccines reduce your um, risk of, of death by something, depending on the study you want to look at, tenfold, twelvefold, fifteenfold. It's really quite significant, but it doesn't reduce it to zero. And when you're talking about someone who's in their 80s or 90s, you know, the effect of vaccination is essentially to make them only as vulnerable as an unvaccinated, say, 50 or 60 year old who is someone who's relatively safe, but not all things considered safe. And so we're already seeing that that now we're it's hard to get data precisely about who's dying of Delta. But my understanding from piecing together state level data is that one fifth or one quarter of all deaths are among vaccinated people right now. They're overwhelmingly in the old and those with comorbidities, but it's not an insignificant share. It's not driving the numbers we're seeing. It's not the predominant source of it, but it is, it's there. You know, so if a thousand people are dying a day, you're talking about something like a couple of hundred vaccinated people dying a day right now from Delta. And if, you know, Omicron is going to be spreading to more people, including more vaccinated people, it's quite possible that we'll see those numbers grow too. But I think, you know, big picture we're still talking about, you know, much, much higher risks among the vaccinated and we're uh, the, un, the unvaccinated. And we're likely to see in even a quite scary Omicron wave, severe illness and death dominated by, by unvaccinated people. The really worrying thing about, to me, about the recent story with Delta, even before Omicron, as it relates to all this, is it really does seem, especially in the US, but in a lot of countries in Western Europe too, even with relatively high vaccination rates, we still have enough unvaccinated people that we can 
have some large scale dying. And, you know, the U.S., the U.S. is, is really remarkable here. I, I wrote a piece about it last week, but, you know, if you look at the ratio of cases to hospitalizations and deaths from America's Delta surge, so basically in September and October of this year, if you took X many cases, how many people would you expect would be hospitalized and how many people would you expect would die? That ratio is actually unchanged from the pre-vaccine winter surge of January and February, 2021. So given the same number of, there are somewhat fewer cases, we're talking about an average of about 100 to 150 new case, thousand cases a day, as opposed to 200 to 250,000 new cases. But given the same number of cases, you're seeing as many severe outcomes, which means overall, you know, basically the vaccines in Delta fought to a draw. At the national level, the new variant and the vaccines, and we ended up in exactly the same place. And now we're on the downslope of Delta, but we're at flat. Exactly flat. the same yeah, place, meaning we're exactly back where we were before we had any vaccines. Is that what you mean? The death rate of American cases is where it was before we had any vaccines. And the hospitalization rate is, in fact, higher than it was, you know, given the same number of cases than it was before we had vaccines. This is something that I've been worrying over, talking to people about, asking for explanations about for a few months now. I had a long interview with the Dr. Eric Topol in, in late August, just as, as Delta was about to take off. And we were looking at this, this very early data for Delta. And I was saying, you know, I just, I just don't understand. We're talking about 80% of America's senior population has been vaccinated. We know that the vast majority of the country's mortality risk is concentrated in that group among America's seniors. And the age, really, the age skew is so dramatic. It's, it's you know, some, an 80-year-old has 10,000 times the mortality risk as a, as a 10-year-old and hundreds of times the risk of someone in their 70s or 60s, or 60s anyway, that you would expect that if we got 80% of the America's seniors vaccinated, that would mean that no matter how big a wave hit us, we would see death that was only 10%, 20% of what we had seen before vaccination. And that's what we saw in the UK's Delta wave. They have higher vaccination rates than we do, but they had huge case growth, pretty small growth in, in death and hospitalization. In the US, it just didn't happen. In the US, we had somewhat smaller, a somewhat smaller spike of cases than we had the previous winter, which was the worst period in the pandemic. But again, given the same number of cases, you know, the ratio of cases to hospitalizations and cases to deaths didn't improve at all. So when we talk about, you know, vaccines protecting individuals from getting it maybe by a factor of five or something and, and getting protecting you against severe illness by a factor of 10 or 12. It seems like basically Delta, at least in the US, counteracted those forces. And we had enough unvaccinated people that we produced the same death toll from the same number of cases. And I honestly don't feel like I understand it. And I've been asking doctors and epidemiologists for months about it. And I don't feel myself like i really understand what's going on, or that I've gotten an answer from anyone else who felt super confident about what was going on. But I think among other things, it probably means that Delta turns out to have been considerably more virulent and pathogenic, not just more transmissible, such that the, the same number of cases, in you know, would produce a... But then what, such a high what ex explains the disparity then between the UK and here? I mean, it's... it's, it's and is it because possibly that the more vulnerable age groups who are likely to be unvaccinated sort of are vaccine 
versions and therefore easily gotten rid of in the second wave. In other words, if the 20% of seniors that were unvaccinated, maybe they're all super concentrated in the various places that have been hit hardest. And, and that accounts for the discrepancy. But that's, well, but in general, well, two, very sobering. Okay. Yeah. So, so in the UK, they did a much better job of vaccinating seniors. So their, their overall rates are not that much higher than the US. It's a few percentage points, I think, maybe five percentage points higher than us. But the senior rate is considerably higher. They got, at least according to the NHS, they've gotten like 99% of seniors vaccinated. And that, that really does make a big difference. On the other hand, in the US, we don't... <laughs> The truth is we don't know how many people have been vaccinated because our data is so bad. According to the CDC, 99.9% .9 of American seniors have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. Now, we just know that that's not true, but it also calls into question a lot of this, a lot of these numbers, which are just not reliable. So when the CDC says 86% or I think it's now 87% of American seniors are quote unquote fully vaccinated, which by which they mean two doses, I mean, table and talk about separately what waning immunity means for the idea of being fully vaccinated, because that's important too. We don't know exactly what to make of that data. Are 86% of American seniors actually vac fully vaccinated? Or is it 80? Or is it 75? And these are gradients that make a huge difference when you're talking about just how vulnerable the population is. So it's quite possible that even the, the lead that the, the official lead that the UK has on us in terms of vaccinating seniors is considerably bigger then I mean, sorry, the real lead is considerably bigger than the than the official lead, and there are many more vac unvaccinated seniors than than we believe than the CDC says we have. On your second point about the concentration of people in certain places, I do think that there's significant, you know, there's reason to believe that a lot of our models here are quite simplistic and don't account for the structure of our social networks, our population networks. I do think that is an under studied underappreciated factor that you know it can rip through certain pockets in, in certain places quite quickly especially when all those people share behavior including around vaccines when you look state by state you know the delta wave was really concentrate when it was really really going poorly was concentrated across the deep south and florida now the deep south was many of those states were the places where they had the lowest vaccination rates in the country florida had a nationally average vaccination rate but they were I think there are real problems with, with that data. There are a lot of parts of Miami where, according to the state, 200% of local residents have gotten fully vaccinated there. So you know that it's not accurate. And we, we can also talk about the reasons for that data being so bad, but in any event, it's not all that reliable. But then you look at what's happened since then over the course of October into November, now into December, the, the hotspots have really migrated out of those places into states that have at least at the state level, much more respectable vaccination rates. So I think right now that the states that are have the highest case levels are Minnesota um, and Michigan and Wisconsin. And these are not exemplary. They're not Vermont. They're not Hawaii. Um, but they are not Mississippi and they're not Alabama. And there's still quite a lot of spread up there as well. So, you know, I think what I come back to again and again in talking about this, and I think we talked about this when we talked last about a year ago, is just there are a lot of factors to spread here that we don't really understand. The disease doesn't really seem to be containable in the way that we would like to believe it is. There are things we can do to limit its spread. There are certainly with vaccines, things we can do to protect ourselves from severe disease. But in terms of like why it takes off in one place and not in another, a lot of that seems maybe calling a chance is a little too um, dismissive, but it seems to be beyond our ability to really understand. And 
It happens to be the case that in the US again and again, in part for reasons we understand, and I think also in part for reasons we don't, we've been hit by much worse, much more severe outcomes than, than in other parts of the world. It's funny, I was thinking of maybe taking a winter break somewhere and I looked at various states and I realized that Florida is now the safest state to go to with the levels of COVID infection being uh, really very low in comparison with the rest of the country it stands out rather remarkably. At this point, I just kind of just scratch my head and throw the book away. I, 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 I've heard so many arguments about Florida both ways, and I'm getting to the point where I just don't understand this, this disease. I don't understand how it's behaving the way it's behaving. I do have a real sense culturally and politically of, of exhaustion with it and, and frustration that we, we, we have not, and, and especially the worst, which is you think it's over and then it isn't. In other words, the dashed hopes that are in some ways more embittering than, than endless slog. When you think the light is coming and then it suddenly gets dark again, your gloom is much deeper. My, my, it just, I'm just thinking, and again, this is just thinking personally, is that, well, what would I do under these circumstances? I would probably hunker down more than I might have. In other words, that, I, that it seems quite likely to me that if we get sudden new wave of o Omicron infections, that, that economic activity will decline, that people will start working at home again, that there will be some kind of uh, recoil, as it were, which could end. And my other concern is that, that if these require hospitalizations in very large numbers, you know, sometime in the spring, we're going to have a hard time having hospitals functioning in the sense that they won't be able to do other operations while they're grappling with these new waves of Omicron. And I don't see so far the idea that, that you know, if this happens, more and more people will go and get vaccinated when the vaccines do not seem to be. I mean, this is, of course, they're worth doing. Of course, they reduce serious levels of disease, regardless. But it's just a harder sell to sell people. You know, we got you got to take this shot, and it'll it, it, you'll still get the, you may well still get the disease. Everyone else is, but it won't kill you this time. It's just a harder sell than take the shot, and you're going to be fine forever. Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm I'm sold on like this will not kill you. I'm happy to take a shot, and it's going to stop me from dying. But yeah, I mean, I I'm think, fine with um, it too. I've just come to that definition, <laughs> even though I'm older and more vulnerable than you are. I'm just like, well, and then when yeah. you think of a thousand deaths a day, it sounds. But you think what are, what are the tolls of other diseases in the country per day? Cancer must be more than a thousand a day, wouldn't it? Oh, be? I don't think so. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, we could look that up. But, you know, the, when people talk about the end game here, they often talk about what's called the endemic state, which is basically when, you know, infections and it's flu. disease, they don't, dis they don't disappear, but they're, they're in, kind of in the background. So the flu kills, depend in, a, in an average year, kills somewhere between fifteen and 50,000 people a year. We are currently now, with Delta, pre-Omicron, we're at an annual pace of about 400,000. So we are, you know... Now, you can't necessarily take what's going on in a single month and just assume it'll be flatly you know, performing in that way going forward. But a thousand people a day is you know, 365,000 a year, and we're a little above a thousand a day. So we're really at about 400,000 a year, which, by the way, is more people than died in 2020. And it's more people than have died to this point in 2021, which means we are now like above average 
dying for the pandemic. We are above the pandemic average in terms of daily deaths now. I don't think most people appreciate that. And I think, you know, you don't. Um, and I, I think, think it's, it's maybe we should sit here for a second and absorb that. It, it, what you're essentially saying is that the COVID epidemic is worse today than it has been since the very beginning. So it may accept the first immediate wave in places like New York that we are dealing with, and nationally at least, is the worst it's been right now. I think September and October of this year nationally were the were the fifth and sixth or the sixth and seventh worst months of the pandemic. So it's not like, you know, number one and number two, but we're now at month 21. So it is worse than it has been for most of the pandemic. And we're seeing the numbers tick up a little bit. On the last few days, we've been, we were under a thousand for a couple of days. Now we're back up over a thousand in the rolling average. And I, I expect that seasonal effects will, will make that worse over the next couple of months, even putting aside the prospect of Omicron. So yeah, I don't think we're we're over this yet. You know, a few weeks ago, Trevor Bedford, who's an epidemiological modeler, put together his estimate of what endemic COVID looked like, and he guessed that in the future it would mean between forty thousand and a hundred thousand deaths a year. So basically, like twice the flu. Basically, it would still be something we'd have to worry about. It would be a non-zero consideration in hospitals and especially among the old. But that would be the number that he would expect. You know, the endemic state to settle in, and we're now at you know. 10 times that low end figure, four times that that high end figure. And yeah, I think a lot of people in liberal parts of the country are basically behaving as though it's more or less over. And it's just these backwards vaccine denying people who are dying. And to some degree, that's a true description of the state of the of the pandemic. I think it's also in a lot of ways, morally and politically ugly. And you see particularly the, the sort of hypocrisy in the way that Two months ago, there were a lot of people who were saying, you know, who were a lot of people in like the Northeast and California who were angry at people in Mississippi and Florida for not getting their shots and for the, letting the disease continue. You don't see any of that anger now being directed at Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin, even though presumably it's still predominantly people who are unvaccinated in those places who are who are dying and who are getting infected. And there is a, just, I think, in general, an uncomfortable tri- tribal partisan lens that's been put on all of this that makes it like you know, almost imperative for liberals to feel like it's time to move on or at least before omicron they felt like it was they, it was they, they felt the need to like declare that it was time to move on even as there was a really high level of death going on and and beyond death serious illness and suffering going on in other parts of the country much of it presentable preventable some of it not preventable <laughs> some of it yeah, I mean, if you're if you're talking about a couple of hundred va- fully vaccinated people dying a day that's you know that's that's really not nothing no and and the fully vaccinated part is also really important there because you know especially among senior citizens you see quite significant drop offs in immune protection 5 and 6 months out from the from the second dose which is you know why they why we're doing boosters but the booster uptake has been pathetic compared to the um, vaccination rollout we're deal- we have something like 40% of the people who got two doses who have gotten a booster, which means, you know, and the numbers for seniors are a little bit higher. But if you think that most of the senior population was vaccinated in January and February and March, then you're talking about a population that without boosters is going to become exposed again right around now as we're heading into this quite scary season, you know, the, the peak season for respiratory illnesses like this one, and as we're facing a new variant. So I don't want to be all bleak and doomsday about it. I think <laughs> well, you've done a, a pretty of- good job. <laughs> Even if you haven't meant to, I'm ready to jump out the window at this point. But I mean, what you, but no, I, I mean, I'm well, there, there appreciative of having this laid out. I mean, we yeah. need to think about it because we, 
we we arrive psychologically at a certain point and we get comfortable in that point. And then we, then, I mean, it's so hard for us to let go of that when the data has actually disproven that, or not disproven it, but just changed over time. And we, yeah. we know more things. It's just this very human, especially when you're confronting this life and death, terrifying thing. The other, the other part of it that that's unknowable that we are getting some suggestions from South Africa again is that this, the age dynamic, may be different with Omicron than with Delta. In other words, that children. And younger people may be more liable to get infected and have serious disease from this variant than the previous one. Now, if that happens and children become, as they usually, I mean, the remarkable thing is they've been spared in this particular pandemic. But then that changes a whole lot sociologically, politically, psychologically. Changes everything. Changes everything. Yeah. What is, yeah. is, is that possibly about to happen because it seems to me that if then if then children were kept out of school another year we're we're facing a serious societal crisis in which this yeah, I mean, virus about, is crippling us you think about the restrictions that have been imposed on kids to this point given extremely low mortality risk at least and think if that were raised even just by a factor of 5 which would still make them you know compared to the population as a whole quite safe what what would happen? My sense is that the reports about that coming out of South Africa are quite preliminary and anecdotal. And we've over the course of the pandemic, we are routinely treated to stories about kids filling up ICUs in particular places and needing more oxygen. And it basically just hasn't been borne out by the data that nowhere at no point have kids really gotten again, they're not not vulnerable. Something like seven hundred or eight hundred American kids have meaning people under the age of eighteen have died of this disease. That's I don't want to diminish that. That's a lot of tragedies. But in a country where we're coming up on 800,000 people dying, it's a it's a very, very small fraction. And I to this point, I've grown skeptical of that kind of anecdotal reporting. Now, it may yeah. be the case. It, I don't want to say it's not possible. It may no, be but the I case totally that these anecdotal reports are, are borne out. But I, I that's one of the things that I'm I want to see a little bit more before I really get scared myself. There is a positive hypothesis sort of encouraging, optimistic story to tell about Omicron, which it's very tentative and speculative. We don't really know. And different people have very different ideas about this, even those who know the, the, the scientific questions really well. But in theory, if we have a variant that is much more transmissible and much more mild, that could be, quote unquote, a good thing, because it would basically spread immunity through the population without imposing that much additional serious illness and death. Now, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable endorsing that certainly at this stage of the of the of the of this new wave, but it is possible that 3 months from now we look back and say we got, you know, if if the US ceiling vaccination was 65%, it's possible that this wave is going to essentially vaccinate the remainder without imposing an enormous cost in terms of 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 serious illness and death. You mean we, we actually return all the way back to herd immunity? Is that is that what you're beginning yeah. to say? Yeah, I mean, I mean that is you know that is when we get to endemicity is basically when everybody is either the the German health minister said a week or two ago looking at this you know I think maybe even before Omicron you know we're, we're everybody's going to be either recovered, vaccinated, or dead. That's like that's you know that's nobody's going to avoid an encounter with this virus and. If you take that as a supposition, which I think at this point is, is relatively safe um, to assume, you know, at least at a population level, then that means that spreading the disease 
through the population with a variant that is really weak and mild, maybe it's maybe it's too strong to say it's a good thing, but it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. On the other hand, I think, as I said at the beginning, I think there are a lot of open questions about just how pathogenic this is. And I also think that the, the immune evasion reinfection question is relevant here because, you know, that math only works if once you're exposed to it, you're safe from it. And we certainly don't know that. Or that we know that you might be safe from it for just a period of time, and then you won't be thereafter. And that's that's somewhere people get. But but in terms of aiming for endemicity, that's the word, right? Endemicity. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. God knows. But anyway, is kind of like getting to the flu level where you're constantly having to be boosted. There is a sort of acceptable level of death somehow we kind of tolerate as part of a function of of, of living with a virus like this. And do you think how long, how long would it take us to get there? A couple of years? A lot depends on how transmissible this, this, this variant and the ones that come after it are. So we should hope it's sort of super transmissible and super lame. In other words, we should hope that it's easy to catch and isn't too dreadful a diagnosis when you get it, because that would just, that would probably clear a problem with the unvaccinated in terms of having a, a significant pool of people in the society who can spread it much more quickly and also allow it to mutate and, and become in, in different kinds of variations. Yeah, if, if you can assume that people who've been exposed are protected, then a very transmissible, very mild version of the disease is, of all the possible outcomes from here, a relatively, a relatively good one. Now, that's not to say that there won't be additional deaths from it, even in an extremely mild version. When you have it, as we've learned over the last couple of years, when you when you have a new disease spreading through a population, even if less than 1%, even if one-tenth of 1%, even if one one-hundredth of 1% of the population is going to die from it, if it's truly going through the whole population, that still adds up to a lot of a lot of dying. But all things considered, it may allow us to move more quickly to an endemic state than vaccination, which not just in the US, but really all around the world, with a few national exceptions, does seem to have stalled. Now, in some countries, it's stalled at 90%. In some countries, it's stalled at 80%. In the US, it's stalled at about 60% of the, of the population as a whole. And those differences really make it, you know, are important. But in most of the world, in mo- at least most of the of Europe, we're not looking at 100% vaccination rates ever being possible. And in Even in case, places you, you thought might have been, like Germany, or I just imagine every German would immediately show up, but no. What's the German rate? It's like 70, maybe 69%, something yeah. like that. And that sort of sh- surprised me too. And you also hear vaccine reluctance in the developing world, where, you, where again, one's preconceptions that they'd be absolutely fucking thrilled to have a vaccine. But in fact problem right now is less supply of these vaccines than it is, now tell me if I'm wrong about this, that that's the impression I'm getting from reading the press, is that the problem is as much demand now from those places as supply. Well, it's a little hard to know because in a world in which there was widespread um, availability and even aggressive promotion of vaccines all across the developing world, presumably that would have an effect on vaccine willingness. In a situation where it's hard to get a vaccine, in which there hasn't, you know, you don't know anyone who's gotten a vaccine, it's going to be harder for, you know, people are going to be more reluctant. But there are also some, you know, there is some quote unquote logic to to vaccine hesitancy in the sense that, you know, the age skew of the disease is so dramatic. So if you're 17 years old, um, you're 24. I mean, I think it's a good idea for those people to get vaccinated, to be sure it does reduce their risk. 
but you're talking about reducing your risk below you're you're already as an unvaccinated 17 year old you're already safer than i am as a vaccinated 39 year old so if you're satisfied with that i mean i'm satisfied with it you know what i mean so so you would not require that 17 year old to get vaccinated either i mean you could require that as a government federal or a private business owner because at some point i do i tend to agree with you that uh, or you're in, slightly in agreement with Joe Rogan, if you can believe it or not, that, that young people who've made made these calculations in their head, even though I think it's a dumb calculation, because I think the risk from this is absolutely minuscule and trivial on the scale of of risk. Totally. So I don't I don't get it, but I but I also appreciate their right to say, you know, I'm happy to live with that risk. Now, what is the moral of saying that? But you can, and then when you come back at them and you say, well, you can transmit it, and they say to me, well, you can too, and I'm like, fuck, I'm out of arguments. I can't transmit it probably as well as you can, but you're right. So where do we go then? And when I when I read and listen to the sort of alternative media or the the you know the the right wing media, the actual passion behind the subject is is a there's a real passion. I think it's hard. There's a passion passion on the left too, in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although there's there are some there is a weird combination too. There's a passion on the left and also anti-vax for all sorts of usual Hollywoody kind of reasons. Yeah. And there is this also this. I mean, in Provincetown, I would see a woman walking alone on a beach with three masks on, and you're just aware that at the same time there were people who wouldn't let anybody. I mean, it was just there's a variety, and you're right. There were crazy people in the on the left as well as on the right. Personally, personally, yeah. I'm in favor of. I would like to see universal vaccination. And I think that the risks of these vaccines are so low that there is not really a, a strong argument against it, even from the like, you know, individual autonomy. I think that the benefits to society are, are sufficient. And I think that thinking about it at an individual level, the risks, the quote unquote risks of adverse events are so low that even if you have very low risk of COVID mortality, the benefit is still very obviously clear. I just think it's also the case that if I have a one in 20,000 chance of having a severe outcome, if I get sick, it's not an insane thing to think I'd rather not go through the vaccination. And, you know, I would say to an unvaccinated 85 year old, it is insane for you not to be vaccinated. But I, I have a much harder time saying to an unvaccinated 18 year old, it is insane for you not to be vaccinated. And I think that there, especially when you're talking about the developing world, which is how this came up just now, you know, these are countries overwhelmingly young, very few old people, which means actually they've seen considerably less death than a lot of the older countries of, of Europe and, and North America and South America in particular. Now, not to say none, and India is an exception there. They had horrible problems with Delta. But in general, when you're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the part of the world that's been has had the least vaccination, you know, success. You're also talking about a part of the world that, at least according to the stats that we can rely on, show very little COVID dying. And I think those things are um, not unrelated. So, you know, I would like to see a global vaccination program. I think it's kind of amazing and horrifying that the U.S. hasn't led that. I think it's such an easy diplomatic win for Joe Biden. The I can't remember if it was the IMF or the World Bank, but they came out with a figure maybe six or nine months ago that it would cost only $50 billion to vaccinate the whole planet and that the return on that investment would be $9 trillion. So we're talking about a, whatever that is, 180-fold return 
on your investment by 2025. And $50 billion is nothing to the US government. In fact, Bill Gates could do it himself. And yet what we've chosen to do is to, you know, donate a few million vaccines here, a few million vaccines there. I think it's sort of horrifying that we haven't done a better job promoting vaccination throughout the world. But I also, at the moment, wouldn't be able to tell, you know, a 17-year-old in Namibia that, you know, they're they're crazy for for not going, not, you know, not taking a trip to the local vaccine clinic. Running a government you know, some level it makes sense. Yeah. Running a government during this pandemic has been incredibly difficult. And I, I think we everybody's a critic all the time. And understandably so. They they have made big fuck ups. They've got to some things right. What I'm interested in thinking is because you you have to tread this balance, right, between not depressing people and unnecessarily uh, keeping them at home, telling them that everything's shit. Equally, you can't ever claim victory because you know that that virus is around the corner waiting to kick you, kick your mission accomplished sign up your wazoo at any moment. And you, 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 so you have this weird, but if you were president now and you saw the current landscape emerging, you saw this new variant, you saw that we had stalled on vaccinations, especially if there's a sense in the country, I think this is true, that, that we hoped that Biden would end this thing and he hasn't. And that is a, that's going to become a pretty big liability in the future, especially given the, the basis on which he was elected. We're not doing that well in vaccinating people anymore. We've lost, we've lost an edge. In fact, There's, you could say that we're losing people because of waning immunity. There are more people who are losing immunity that they gain from vaccines in the winter than are taking it up now, which means actually our overall protection may be shrinking as we're heading into this winter wave, Omicron wave, um, which is quite scary. Well, why isn't Ron Klain jumping up and down about this? Like, where is the leadership on this? I mean, what would what message should they craft that we are about to enter a really difficult period with this new variant? We don't want to scare you. On the other hand, the need to get vaccinations now is vital. How can they penetrate? I mean, it's Funny, not just, like every- yeah, go on. I was just going to say, it's like at five different points during that question, I was like, are you talking about COVID or climate? Well, yes. Well, we, let's move to that. <laughs> I mean, we we, only, we wanted to talk about that. It's just that this is so kind of fascinating <laughs> no, 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 totally. and, and, and yeah. urgent in a way. And the stuff you're telling us seems to be important to get into our heads. The mm. problem is that vaccination is by far our strongest tool here. Obviously. Yeah. Um, there just isn't anything that approaches it. When we talk about, you know, mask well, here's wearing. Here's the thing. What about the COVID yeah. pill? Like, it seems the treatments, the there are two things that coming back from England. First of all, why aren't there easily available tests in every CVS everywhere? Like, yeah. why, or why just is mail that? To you. Or just every week we get a bunch yeah. uh, in our mailbox. It's not that hard. In Britain, it's happening all the time. And people are using them like, oh, I want to have a Christmas party. Well, why don't I just see if I'm okay to begin with and find out a couple of days before. Just those little things could make big differences. At least it gives you information. You're able to protect other people. We don't have that. I don't know why we don't bloody well have that. The other thing is the COVID pill, which I'm not even sure they've, they've, they've only approved one of them, I think, the FDA. There's one more, a, a more And there are some reasons one. that they shouldn't have done that. The other one is much better right. on a variety of metrics. Not just more effective, but it's also less dangerous. Yes. So I'm banging my head on the table about that, too. Like, where's the FDA? Why are they playing this stupid game? Why aren't we also having GPs able to, if the, when you start getting symptoms of this and you find out you're, you've got COVID, they, 
get you can get the prescription in you right away because time is of the essence, as I understand it, with the COVID pill. And I mean, it's like a mother of all Tamiflu, right? It's it's like a really good Tamiflu, a Tamiflu that actually works. Yeah, no, I mean the you know the trial for the Pfizer drug Paxlovid eighty reduced serious illness by eighty nine percent, which is a, a total total game changer. And is um, that on top of that's also for vaccinated or unvaccinated people? Unvaccinated. Right, right, right. But I think I, I expected that the the rates would be similar. I don't. Mm-hmm. It would just be a, a smaller number of people mm-hmm. who would need it in the first place. But the, so if you can cut it off at the treatment phase, in other words, if, if, if people can be confident that even if they get sick, there's a treatment, you'll get better, it's not the end of the world, then I think we'd also have it be in a new situation. But again, I don't hear anything from Washington telling us about this pill, how it's going to affect us, why, and I don't hear any political pressure on the FDA to fucking move this along. I, I'm I just don't know where the Biden people are. Yeah, I think it's it's not great. I mean, I think, you know, the two issues that you raised are really connected because if you need to take a pill within three days of your um, symptom onset, you also need to be tested pretty quickly and have a sense that you actually have COVID as opposed to some other respiratory disease. And if we don't have widespread testing, widespread re- reliable testing, it makes rolling out a therapeutic a lot harder because there is that window that you know time window limitation you know that i think the fda is the cdc has come under a lot of fire i think the fda is poor you know performed really poorly throughout the pandemic and this is another instance of it you know the number the thing i keep coming back to is this is out of date now but you know the initial safety data on the vaccines was released in may of 2020 and we didn't start giving doses until December with the very first, and it wasn't really being rolled out until January. Now, there are arguments, of course, for going through efficacy trials to see how effective something would be. But you could do those things much more quickly than we did. And the, the implied argument delaying that rollout by six months was that you know, the number of people who died in the winter surge, which was a couple hundred thousand, that there was some meaningful risk that rolling out this drug to the population, as a, this, this vaccine, rolling out this vaccine to the population as a whole, could theoretically produce as many, as many adverse outcomes or deaths. And that's, it's just preposterous. Like nobody would have said that last June, which is you know, the argument not, not, to, not, not to endorse like the Russian approach to this or the Chinese approach to this, but that's actually what they did. Now they had worse drugs but they also didn't wait. They they just were like, this is pretty safe. We've tested it in a few thousand people, no advert, like just get it out there. And the ultimate, you know, the ultimate impact of that was, you know, maybe on the five-year time horizon, it would have been better served to be running a bunch of different drugs and doing a bunch of different trials and taking the best one. But in the medium term, over the course of the six months or a year, the US suffered really poorly because of that delay. Now, here, what we're talking about is- When you say I the mean, US suffered I, really poorly, you mean probably over 100,000 yeah. people died unnecessarily. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote a piece deal, in, in, to me. in December of 2020 that was called, we had the vaccines the whole time. Yeah, and I remember the piece very well. It was, yeah, it was, it, they were designed within a few days of the of the genome being released. Now, talking about the approval of this, these two particular therapeutics is really, I think, illuminating. I've asked a few people who really know why it is that the Merck drug has been approved and the, and the Pfizer drug hasn't. And they just say, oh, well, like, they just got on the docket sooner. So the FDA was going through the process, you know, okay, we got this in, let's look at the data, let's look at the data. So the Merck drug 
you know, they, their initial reports were that it reduced serious illness and hospitalization by 50%. Then their second round of data showed actually it was only 30%. And it also has this curious feature, which is that it does, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, it has what's called a positive AIMS test, which means that it's a drug that actually does risk changing some of your genetic material. And as far as I know, having had a few conversations with people in this area, before this Merck drug was approved, there was one country in the OECD that had approved one drug that had an OECD, a positive AIMS test, in, like in all of those countries. Now, there are reasons to think that this Merck drug is not actually going to give you cancer or like, like they've done some due diligence there, but it is in a category of drug that has made authorities wary historically. And you're looking at it compared to another drug, the Pfizer drug, that doesn't have that problem and has three, it's three times as effective. So they're just from like a pure strategic public health point of view, it just doesn't seem to make any sense to me that we would be, even if we're going to end up endorsing the Pfizer drug in three weeks, that we would even be in a temporary way endorsing the Merck drug, which is much less effective and, and you know, has some safety and risk issues. Why the FDA... How they receive this is entirely a function of bureaucratic order, right? I mean, just they get one got in the that's, that's my sense. That, in that's other words, the there's, no one, there's no one at the top saying, see, this one's coming down the line here. We need to move that up because we're in a fucking pandemic. Like, I want to know who's doing that. And this is why Biden was elected. It was, it, was, it was for competence and in directing those kind of moves. And all I've seen, to be honest with you, is immense passivity, really poor messaging, not really a sense of being in command of this, and the sense that we're treading water. We're just treading water. I mean, what, is, if what you're saying is that we're, you know, we, we can have another 400, we could have another 400,000 deaths in the next, next 12 months. Yeah, I mean, that's I would say that's probably a worst case scenario, but it's, it's on the table. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think we all got diluted watching the pandemic unfold first under Trump that all it took was getting a competent person in charge. Mm. It is really complicated to begin with. Even if you have a perfectly functioning bureaucracy, even if you have very high levels of social trust, this isn't like an easy mm -hmm. thing to do, right? No. On top of which, the bureaucracy there, even below the levels of political control, like the levels of political appointees, there are real challenges there too. So the FDA is really a case in point. At every stage, if you ask the question about rapid tests, about the original testing that you know they bungled very early on in the pandemic, about the approval of the vaccines, about these drug approvals, if you ask, you know, why is this taking so long or why do they reach this conclusion as opposed to this one? The answer invariably has been because they are sticking to some version of pre-pandemic protocol. Now they are making some adjustments. They are speeding some things up. I don't want to say that they're totally blind to the needs of, of the, you know, the urgency of the present, but they're not totally rethinking their approval process. And ultimately, I think we'd be in a much better position if they had. Now, whether we can, you know, turn things around, personally, I'm I'm pretty skeptical. I mean, when I when I hear Biden going big on rapid tests, first of all, it's like nine months into his presidency and we're finally getting like a big announcement about rapid tests. And second of all, he's like, you're going to be able to get a insurance reimbursement for your test. <laughs> so you got to go to CVS. You got to, they have to have it in stock. You have to buy it for whatever it is, 15 bucks or 20 bucks, which is, you know, all across Europe, it's like where it costs anything, it's a dollar or $2. It's, it's a much more manageable 
cost. And then you have to fill out some paperwork, send it to your insurer, which is like, everybody hates doing that. Why shouldn't, why can't the government just be subsidizing that rollout directly? Why are they involving the insurance companies, which by the way, is also excluding all of the uninsured Americans. It's just a, it's like, this is your big play on rapid tests. It just seems needlessly deferential to pre-existing bureaucratic protocol and the sort of quote unquote politics of the possible. And you would have liked to think that rolling in after Trump, the Trump disaster, the Trump COVID disaster, that you would have much more energy and much more buy-in and much more sort of conviction to overturning a lot of this bureaucratic interference. And, you know, ultimately, I think what we're seeing is something that we're doing better, but also the disease has gotten harder to fight because of the, the variants. And as a result, we're, you know, as I was saying earlier, we're not, we're not back at square one in the sense that we're not going to be locking down cities for months at a time. I don't think that's on the table, but we may well see as much dying as we've seen over the recent past going forward for the next six or nine months. And that's, that's really quite bad. <laughs> yes, um, it is, especially for the people involved and their families. And and also, depending I, upon the impact Can I just say one last has, thing about that, sorry? Yeah, you can, um, sure. Yeah. On the other side of the equation, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about this last spring about the, whole, the, the failure of the West as a whole and how unexceptional the U.S.'s performance was under Donald Trump, even with everything going wrong that we know went wrong, even thing with everything being mishandled as much as we've, as everything we know has been mishandled. Now, if you look at today, which is to say at that point, you know, you, you could look at, you know, the US was, it was, it was doing better than the UK. It was doing better than some other countries in Europe. It was, you know, it was worse than most of its peer countries, but they were all in the ballpark. And so you, you had to say, it may be the cultural forces and other dynamics, you know, structure of population is more significant here than public policy, which differed a lot from country to country. If you look today at The Economist, they maintain a, an excess mortality database, which doesn't apply to some countries in the developing world, so it is limited in its value. But if you look at, over the course of the whole pandemic, what countries in their database, which is basically all of Europe you know, and, and, and the Americas, have done worst, the US is really, really far down that list. Let me just actually call it up so I know. It's like they're... Um, they're not in the top 10. They're not in the top 50, I don't think. Yeah, so the list goes, this is excess excess deaths per 100,000 people. So that measures not just um, from COVID, but other people who died in part because of you know restrictions, because medical access wasn't, wasn't offered. It's like a, a true accounting of the total toll of the pandemic. And the list goes, it's all Eastern Europe. Bulgaria, Russia, Peru, North Macedonia, Serbia, Lithuania, Bosnia, Mexico, Albania, Kazakhstan, Bolivia, Kosovo, South Africa, Romania, Ecuador, Belarus, Poland, Montenegro, Slovakia, Latvia. So they did uh, best. Czech Republic. You're saying. No, these these countries did worse. Okay, worse. Um, yeah, Bulgaria is the worst in the world. Seven hundred and eighty excess deaths per people per, per hundred thousand. The U.S. is like fortieth on this list with two hundred and forty-seven deaths, excess deaths per hundred thousand. So almost four times better than Bulgaria, three times better than Russia. And, you know, on some level, you could say, well, of course, we're a much richer country. We have much better healthcare. We should be able to, to do better here than some of these much poorer countries with much worse healthcare systems. And I think that is a lot of what we're seeing. But it also just complicates, it complicates the American incompetence question in general when we're doing, you know, worse than the richest country in the world should be doing. But not nearly as badly as many of other countries across across. Where is Europe, someone like Germany America. on that list? Where is a place like Germany on that list? Germany is at 111 
deaths per 100,000. So that's about twice as good as the US. And there are maybe 20 spots below the US. What about Sweden? Our old friends in Sweden. Yeah. Yeah, Sweden's done a lot better than the US. Sweden is at a, right, right where Germany is. Sweden's right. at 112 excess deaths and Germany's at 111 excess deaths. And yet one country had almost no lockdowns and the other had a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's... I. I I think that there's an interesting there is interesting research to do on that question. I think that Sweden is much better to compare Sweden to Denmark and Finland, which did considerably better still because they are you know they're they're sort of much more like countries. Germany is a much more international cosmopolitan place that was probably seeded with the disease much more. And so when you compare Sweden to their neighbors, they they did do a lot worse. I think that's important to keep in mind. Okay. But it's also not. You know, this, the story is not simple in any one direction, right, and it's right. just very hard to control this problem overall. This is a pretty hard pivot, but we'll do it anyway, because I just wanted to catch up with you with uh, COP26. I mean, one of the contexts for what we're talking about is the general major shift in our climate, which is often accompanied with a whole new range of phenomena, viral outbreaks of various kinds as we on earth, literally some parts of the world into the air. And what was your impression of the whole conference, David? I mean, it was it was held on in the beautiful, luscious sunlight of Glasgow. And and people the impression I get from people is it was it was okay. It was good to get a lot of people more on paper and but not exactly what we what we need. It, it, it was it was it was Necessary but not sufficient. Is that a? Is that how? How am I being too depressive here? <laughs> you know, it's always hard to ask answer questions about whether climate is depressing or whether news on climate is depressing or not because the answer is always yes, but maybe you know. Yeah, not quite as depressing. Um, <laughs> basically, I think not much was accomplished in Glasgow. What we saw was the consecration or affirmation of trajectories that have been unfolding over the last couple of years in which because largely because renewable prices are falling so quickly, we're seeing many, many more countries around the world embracing decarbonization as a official public policy. So in the year leading up to Glasgow, we saw major net zero commitments from all across the EU, the EU as a whole also, South Korea, Japan, and China most significantly. And we didn't see anything like that this time. We saw a commitment from India, but it was for 2070 or 2080, which is so far in the future that it's practically meaningless. And the fact of those two things, that the conference itself didn't really produce much meaningful progress, and that we saw quite a lot of, I think, exciting, laudable commitments over the previous year, suggests to me the possibility that much of what will be done over the next few years to decarbonize the world won't be done under the auspices or under the aegis of the UN and this international body, that it will be conducted much more country to country by countries who see the benefits of decarbonizing themselves. And to some degree, that means that the most ambitious goals that people who care about climate have are now impossible. That if we are trusting nation by nation to move given their domestic politics, given the power of incumbent industries and incumbent corporations, we're just not going to move fast enough to allow the world to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And I think that there's a pretty strong argument to abandon that goal, which has been the stated goal of first, the countries of the developing world starting in 2009, then was sort of formally, but 
only nominally adopted by the world as a whole in the Paris Agreement and has also been a rallying cry for the, the activists of the climate left over the last few years. I just don't think that there's any serious person who thinks that we're on a path to that. In 2018, the UN published a big scientific report famously that kicked off a lot of the activism we've seen saying that in order to keep the world's temperatures below 1.5 degrees, we would have to cut emissions by 45% by 2030. So we're now three years after that and emissions are going up and the IEA expects that they're going to continue going up for the next couple of years. I don't know a single person who thinks that we're going to cut our emissions by 45% by 2030. There are some far-fetched sort of techno solutionist perspective that we could maybe do undo some of that damage in the second half of the century that we're doing now. I guess I wouldn't say that I rule that out completely, but it seems really strange to me. And overwhelmingly, my major impression of Glasgow is it's just so strange to me that I saw leader after leader get up on stage, talk in existential terms about this crisis, endorse this goal and the necessity of, 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 of protecting it, the goal of 1.5 degrees, when they all must know that it's essentially out of reach. And I think that that is a really strange and fascinating political dynamic. 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen someone like Boris Johnson go full Greta at Glasgow. You would have heard him say, I can't get up there and endorse goals I know we won't hit. That would have been like a conventional political perspective. This is important. We need to keep pushing, but I'm not going to get up on stage and say it's life or death that we hit a target that I know we're not going to hit. And yet that's really what we've seen. Not just Boris was the most cartoonish of the, of the bunch, but that's really what, what we saw across you know, all of these leaders talking in existential terms about this particular target, 1.5 degrees, that they have to know is basically out of reach at this point. And on some level, I count that as progress. I think it's good that this is being talked about in those terms. It's being communicated through the media in those terms. It's not just the people marching in the street who are talking that way. I think it's good for the world to hear it from people who they would think of as sort of sober-minded, often centrist you know, people, even conservatives. But I also wonder if we're entering into a phase in which a calculation has been made by many of these leaders that all they have to do is rhetoric or that like ever more impassioned rhetoric can excuse meaningful but inadequate action, which is really where we are. The world is changing. It's changing faster than I thought was possible. I think some of the forecasts for the ultimate climate endgame are considerably, which I trust, are considerably more optimistic than they were a few years ago. But we've lost the opportunity to avoid serious warming and all that that brings. And yet we're still talking about that as a, as a live goal and even as a kind of existential goal. And I don't know ultimately what that means for climate politics. It could mean that the world just starts to tune out that language, but it may also mean that that perspective is taking over and two or three years from now, we will see much more intense commitments, not just from political leaders, but through the corporate world where the same dynamic is sort of unfolding. You see people saying really, really ambitious stuff and then following up with policy and, and, and planning that is considerably more ambitious than was being, you know, the plans that were being made five or 10 years ago, but less ambitious than even their own rhetoric would, would suggest is necessary. Well, I have, the trouble is I have, a, I have two very 
brief Enviro questions, and, and maybe they're because they're just questions that come up in my own research. Like, how viable are these new little mini nuclear stations that the Rolls Royce is developing that, that France seems to be warming to? I mean, how real is this little boomlet in nuclear interest? I think it's real. I think we don't yet know how scalable economically it is. They remain quite expensive. They're less expensive than previous generations, but they're not as cheap as renewable energy. So, which we have the tech ready now and being rolled out now. There are some limitations to renewables. Most people, even optimistic people think they can allow us to get like 80, 85% of our energy needs, but not 100%. And so there is some need for other tech to, to pick up the slack. Maybe it'll be through battery technology, but that'll probably be a decade away. So we can't, we can't count on it right now. And I think nuclear can play a role there. And China is really going all in. I think they're trying to build out more nukes over the next 15 years than the whole world has built over the last 25. I think well, that's, 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 that's know, extraordinary. That's a big decision. Totally. Big shift. On all of, but, you know, I, I start on all of these questions from the fact that, you know, now 90, per, according to Carbon Tracker, 90% of the world lives in places where new renewable energy is cheaper than dirty energy. So it's not the case that renewable is an impossible economic burden, in fact, the opposite. And it's not the case that we need to do R&D to supply energy, supply the energy needs of the world. We have the stuff we need. We need a lot of upfront spending and planning. But maybe more importantly, if we're really hoping to be ambitious about limiting warming, what we need to do is have a way of retiring existing fossil fuel capacity and keeping that stuff in the ground. Like we're not going to stay below two degrees if we don't do that. And more nukes, better renewables, that can make that a little bit easier. But ultimately, if you're living in a world where renewable energy is already cheaper, it's about you know political social resistance rather than tech or economics. And well, you know, my, think- my point about the nuclear stuff is that if you're talking about politics and we're trying to get buy-in and we're trying to get domestically, to give the right some kind of anti-carbon thing that they can get excited about, even if, especially if it pisses off elements of the left, then so be it. Most sane people in the middle would be like, fine, this is part of a, a mix we will probably need. It's good politically to create more more widespread sense of buy-in to the whole project, which is a problem in this country, if not in most other Western countries. I mean, in, in Britain, as, as you know, the Tories seem to be as emphatic yeah. about this as any of the other parties. I think that that's possible. I think it's, I would say two quick things. The first is that the, the actual climate left has gotten a lot more comfortable with nuclear over the last year yeah, or two. I've noticed. Um, and I worry a little bit more about the sort of normie liberal resistance to nuclear right. power than yep. I do like the real yep. activists. It yep. used to be the case that activists were quite negative. It's no longer really the case a little bit the case, but I worry more about like the, the forces that closed India Point or are closing yeah. Diablo Canyon. And and I think that that's part of the Biden, in general, the, the approach you're outlining is, has been a big part of the way that Biden has approached this subject generally in the sense that a lot of the spending in these in these two bills has to do with R&D. There's spending for carbon removal tech, which is relatively popular on the right. And there's um, the 45Q tax credits have, you know, maybe even throwing a lifeline to some coal plants. That's how friendly they are to, you know, to, to those businesses. So I think there is some additional coalition building right here. It's just a sort of irony of the present moment that it's not the activists who are the problem. It's like the Joe Manchins of the world who are the problem. Question about renewables. I mean, there are some worries about the waste of renewables. I mean, the amount of 
of actual physical material required for solar panels at the scale we're talking of, for example, is hard to dispose of. And, and we see the stuff being shipped all around the world as, a, as, as in some dirty chemicals and dirty materials and minerals in these things. And that, in fact, we need to begin to account for, for the, the, the waste of renewables in our calculation of their, their costs and benefits, that it's becoming a, an increasingly difficult problem to deal with because they can't last forever these 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 panels and they've got to go somewhere and they're very hard to dispose of well and very hard to produce on the front end i think both things are true and especially when you think about you know forecasts calling for you know a tenfold or more increase over the next um, 20 years we're talking about doing much more mining for a lot of these materials which are going to be it's going to be really ecologically disruptive and, could and be politically destabilizing in a whole completely. several parts of the world. Yeah, I mean at the, at the moment cobalt I think is being produced like almost entirely in Congo and there are all of these political problems with that um, but it's not the only problem there are places all around the world that have had and there are great power rivalries the Chinese and the Americans are fighting over cobalt and the disposal thing is is I think also a real concern I, my understanding is that there's some exciting innovation around basically Recycling uh, solar panels rather than needing to totally discard them, but it's it is the case that the stuff that we're building out now is not yet capable of being sort of restored and recycled in that way. And so, what we're building today is likely to have to be um, discarded actually relatively soon. The the life the lifetimes are not so long. The good news there is that ten years from now, renewable you know solar powers are likely to be way cheaper, which is you know t if they're tenfold cheaper from an economic point of view, it won't be all that problematic to be replacing them. But there is absolutely the environmental cost that you that you talk about that is it's real and it's quite large you know for me when i look at the big problem i think if we have to take a deal where in a handful of places around the world there are these really terrible mines and we have a problem disposing of you know of this material in order to limit ultimate ultimately limit global temperature rise you know maybe it's not my ideal deal but i'll take it right but those costs are absolutely real and we we probably should be now that we're about to embark on a actually ambitious rollout of this tech, we should be planning much more seriously for those um, problems. David, thank you for coming back. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your expertise and your balance and your judgment on these things. I, 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 I've been sobered by our conversation about COVID. I do think that we're maybe ahead of ourselves in our head about where we are on this and we need to prepare ourselves for various eventualities and for this well, not it's, being it's, over. It's, the, I, it's great to talk to you and it was great seeing you. I, the one thing I would say just as a, as a finale in response to that is that, you know, I do think what we have is a situation in which a year ago we were talking about individual risk and social risk as though they were the same. And that meant that when there was widespread illness and infection and death, that scared us as individuals. And that was reasonable. And in fact, it was, it was, it was sort of helpful. It was pro-social for us to be wor worried in those ways because it meant that we were responding to prevent spread, ultimately the spread of the disease. We're now in a situation because of the vaccines and because different parts of the country, different parts of the world are behaving so differently in response to its threats that we've had a real divergence of individual risk and social risk. And I think we're now in a situation where barring some real surprise with Omicron, Vaccinated people, well-vaccinated people who've had their booster in the last couple of months don't have to feel like they are themselves at all that much risk, especially if they are relatively young or middle-aged. But we also shouldn't take that to mean that anybody who's dying elsewhere in the country is insignificant or that we shouldn't be designing public policy to protect them 
or to try to help them. And I think that there's one of the problems in the way that we've started to evolve this divergent sense of risk is that many people, almost everyone I know um, who feels individually safe has just stopped thinking about those who are not. And that's important, not just because those are lives, but also because those who are not protected include 95 year olds who are vaccinated and that we should try to halt this disease in its tracks for those people in addition for ourselves in addition to for ourselves so i you know i am worried about the ultimate death toll i am worried that over the next few months things are going to get worse than they've been and they've and they've really been bad in ways that i think most of us have been reluctant to acknowledge but i don't think necessarily to end where we started with your first question about how my life has been disrupted and then you answered how your life has been disrupted i don't know that those of us who are behaving like you and I have been, and may maybe many of your listeners too, I don't know that our lives are gonna be all that profoundly affected. On some level, that's an indictment. If like 2,500 Americans are dying every day and you and I can go to our, about our business like it's no big deal, that's a moral indictment of us in our country. But I think it may also be comforting to some degree to know that, again, barring some really bad news on Omicron, that you know the, the adjustments that, we're, that we've made over the last couple of months may well be the ones that we're living with for the next six months and not a whole nother category of intrusion and lockdown. But we'll see. I think very much is still up in the air. So maybe we should talk again in, in three months' time. Let's stay in touch, David. It's always good to hear your your insights and benefit from the amount, vast amount of research you're doing every day, I imagine. It's, it's, it's exhausting. I can't imagine the number of studies <laughs> and keep up with those of us just rely upon your work and other people's works are, 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 are most grateful. Especially when we, I feel like it's coming from an honest broker and, and I, I really do feel that with you and, and it's just increasingly rare to find that and, and to trust it. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Great to talk and yeah, let's stay in touch. All right, next week. What's next week? Oh, yes, Michael Schellenberg. We're going to have someone who directly <laughs> disagrees with some of these things and um, also on some other questions. So uh, we'll see you then. And we'll get to the bottom of COVID and the climate at some point anyway. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. <laughs>